Uh, hey, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Let me kind of fill you in on where we're at. Uh, last week, we looked at this, the, really the main theme of Hebrews, which is look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. In the process of the church at this time period, being discouraged, being exhausted, being uh, tempted, being persecuted, their fellow believers being fed to lions. The authors walk through men and women of great faith in chapter 11. Then he enters into chapter 12 and says, listen, fix your eyes upon Jesus. This is what it's all about. Don't get distracted with secondary things. Don't get distracted with what's happening. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus endured suffering. You can endure suffering. And this is really his encouragement to us today. And here's what we want to look at as we walk through the rest of, of really this, this idea or this thought. He now talks about discipline as proof of God's love for us. So here's the title today. It's simply Discipline, the Proof God Loves You. I think a lot of people want to know, how do I know God loves me? And obviously we'd point to the cross, how God demonstrated his love for us, that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. But if you want to know how God loves you, one of the ways he shows us love is through discipline. And this is what the author's saying, and this is what we're going to look at and talk about. So I just want to read the text as a whole, and then we'll pray and look at it more in depth, all right? So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, he just got done saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at all that he endured, all that he went through. Verse 5, he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. He's quoting from Proverbs. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had uh, human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently, with tears. Like the author does so often in this chapter, he exhorts us, he encourages us, and he warns us. And he's saying, here's proof for God's love. Here's how discipline will, will produce change in you. And if it doesn't, 
he gives a warning. And we're going to look at this all more in depth. So let's just pray and just really ask the Lord to speak to us. And, and I would just ask you at home just to take a second again, if there's distractions, if there's noise, if there's things just kind of competing for your attention, just to set that aside, to be present, to be here, just to take a second and say, Lord, I'm here, speak to me. Remind me of how your discipline just proves your love to me. And I would just ask that you take a second to slow down and I know if you have kids running around, it can be distracting. I know there's all those things happening, but I would just ask that right now you'd be able to just take in what it is the Lord wants to speak to you and to us today. So let's do that. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you again. We thank you for your word. It is timely. God, we thank you for the reminder of your love, that whom you love, you chastise, you chase, you pursue, you discipline. Jesus, I ask for those who are just questioning your love, for those who are maybe pursuing something sinful, something contrary to you. They're entertaining something in their heart that Jesus, you would discipline them, us. That God, there'd be a sense where we realize that your discipline is out of love. It's protecting us. It's, it's that fatherly parenting type of love for us. And Jesus, I ask that you remind us that you are a good father, that, that you love us deeply and dearly. And um, Lord, we want to hear from you now. God, I do ask that even as we are here, the 24th week of doing this, Lord, that you would transcend the camera, transcend people listening at home or online later even, Jesus. Just speak right now. Speak to our hearts. And uh, we just invite you. We say, Lord, please speak. Please move. Please heal. Please protect. And, and please correct us, God, if we're going off. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine a parent who looks at their child and basically lets them do whatever they want to do. Now, maybe you don't have to imagine this. Maybe you've seen this before. But for a second, just imagine a parent who says, hey, you know, I don't really know if I believe in this disciplining thing. You know, I was disciplined severely by my parents. So I kind of treat my child as an autonomous adult. You know, I let them do what they want to do. If my child wants to stay up late, they can stay up late. I'll let them go to bed when they want, how they want. You know, if my child wants to yell and scream, you know, I'm not going to change that or correct that. If my child doesn't want to share, that's their prerogative. They don't have to share. If my child says more, I just give them more. If my child tells me no, I just don't fight back. Like, I really want you to imagine for a second, and that kind of parent, you're like, I, I know something like that. Um, but I want you to think about that. You know, no child is going to protest and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I could really use some discipline in my life. Like, you've actually been too, your leash is a little too long. Can you be, like, can you actually discipline me and give me some rules? Like, that's not going to happen. You know, if we saw a parent like that, who let their child do what they want to do, when they want to do it, we would look at that parent as a bad parent. We would say, hey, you're raising a tyrant. Like you're going to raise someone who's not in, in reality. They're going to face the real world and realize they can't get whatever they want when they want. You got to change your parenting style. And here's why I'm bringing this up. We all would look at a parent who just let their kid do whatever they want and say, you're raising like a psychopath. Like you're raising a dangerous person. You need to parent them. Now here's the thing. We do this with God though, meaning we actually want God to be that kind of parent towards us. Like we don't want God to get involved. We don't want God to say the hard thing or to correct us. Like we want, we, we think that we know what's best for ourselves, just like our children think they know what's best for themselves. I think it's really funny when my son Micah tries to like parent me, when he tries to like give me advice. Sometimes I'll be like, you're doing a good job. I'm like, dad, I wouldn't do that. I, you know, I kind of like, at first it's funny, but then you're like, hey, um, I'm the parent. I need to remind you of that. And it's frustrating at times. And here's how I think sometimes we view God. We're like, God, you know, obviously I'm an adult. I know what I'm doing. I don't need your parenting. And just like our child might think that towards us, we go, oh, you're so sweet. You're so naive. I think there's in a sense, there's this with the Lord of like, of course you need my parenting. 
Of course you need my fatherly love. Of course you need my protection and correction. What, what kind of God would our God be if he never corrected us? You know, again, sooner or later, we, we have to understand this. God is gonna disagree with me. God is gonna disagree with what's popular in culture. Like we can think like, I, you know, God's obviously not gonna disagree with my view of sexuality, my view of money, my view of tithing, my view of parenting, my view of, God's not gonna disagree with that. Obviously he sees it the way I see it. And we gotta understand sooner or later, how I view a certain topic and how God views it is gonna be different. And like children, we can sometimes try to correct our parent, our God, when in reality, we need to let God correct us. And this is so key. You know, I think that we maybe have a narrow view of God's love sometimes. I think sometimes like, well, if God loves me, he's gonna let me do whatever I want. It's like, no, of course. When you love someone, parents, you love your children. You love them so much, you can't let them take on self-destructive behaviors, right? You love them so much, you have to correct you have to say the hard thing. You have to discipline. There has to be consequences because you love them so much. You're not gonna let them just do whatever they want, however they want, wherever they want, because that would lead to a little self-destructive tyrant. And again, Christians, please hear this. God sooner or later is gonna correct you and me. He's gonna correct you maybe in a worldview you have. He's gonna correct you in an attitude, in a behavior, in an action. And we can't be upset when God does that. You know, no kid is ever like, mom, dad, your discipline is always spot on. You always correct me just enough. Like we always, we always think it's too much. Our kids always think, but that's not fair. It's too much. And I think we have that view with God. But God's discipline is perfect. It is spot on. It's never too much or not enough. And, and I want us to get this. This is what the author's saying. He's saying, listen, as you face persecution, suffering, trials, difficulties, view it as discipline. Not that it is necessarily discipline, but endure it as discipline. Take on this mindset that God is trying to discipline and teach you, not that this is some karmic debt that, oh, I did something wrong, so that's why this, we need to view it as this moment, whatever, however it came to be, that this is a moment where God is trying to teach me something and I need to learn in this. So we're going to look at this and talk about that even more in depth. So uh, here's really two points today, two, two concepts really, uh, what discipline proves and what discipline produces. So the idea is this, we're going to see what does discipline really prove and what does it prove when it's accepted and what does it prove when it's rejected? Because you, you can accept the discipline and embrace it, or you can be disciplined and never really learn from it, never really accept it. You reject it. So let's just read through the text again. We're going to look at verse 5 and 6. Uh, what discipline proves. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Read again with me. The author says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastises and scourges every son whom he receives. He's like, don't forget this. Now remember, he's writing to a Hebrew audience who would know the Hebrew scriptures. He's quoting from uh, Proverbs chapter three, verse 11. And I just want to read it to you. I know we just read it, but I just want to read it to you. Proverbs three, uh, Solomon is writing to his son and he says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Uh, the version I, I like is actually the ESV, and it's quoting from, you know, Hebrews 12 specifically. Hear it in this way. Hebrews 12, verse 5 in the ESV, it says, My son, listen, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Here's the big thought. Discipline proves you are loved. Discipline proves you are loved. The idea behind this is like the why question. God, why am I being disciplined? Why are you doing this? Why is the reproof or chastising or discipline, these different words being used, why is, there, why is that happening to me? And listen, discipline just proves God loves you. Like we have to get that down. First and foremost, if there's discipline in your life, know that you are loved. And I know that's so contrary to maybe how we view discipline. I know my son, when I discipline him, I don't know if he always feels loved, but it, it is love. Like, I love you so much. I have to correct you. I can't, I can't let you be just a little tyrant. I have to correct this. I have to speak. And here's the father heart of God. He says, I love you so much. I have to discipline you. Again, I want to point at that phrase. It says, do not regard lightly. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. You know, I think sometimes we can regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We get callous to it. I think sometimes our hearts get hardened. We don't understand why God's doing this. We don't see it from a, a lens of love. We just see a disciplining hand, but we don't see the loving heart behind the disciplining hand. Please hear that. Behind every disciplining hand, there's a loving heart. That God says, I have to, dis- I have to discipline you, and it's from this loving heart perspective. He says, do not regard this lightly. Maybe there's bitterness creeping in, and we'll see how that plays into maybe discipline not being received well. We see that when it's not regarded, when you regard the discipline too lightly, it's not received. And so here's what one author said. John MacArthur said this. He says, it is usually because we take our problems too seriously that we take the Lord's discipline too lightly. It's usually because we take our, pr- our problems too seriously that we take the Lord's discipline too lightly. Do we hear that? That right now, what it is, whatever it is you're going through, you're suffering, there's a trial, there's a sin, a temptation that's very strong in your life. If we take that too seriously, we might be missing out on what the Lord's trying to teach us, the discipline in that. I think the, the point of this is, is we should take the discipline of the Lord more serious. We should understand it from this Father heart of God, that God's saying, I love you so much, I can't let you get away with it. I want you to think about this. Do you, maybe you're this person, but do you know anyone, it seems as if they can never get away with something? Like as soon as they mess up, it's like immediately their family finds out, the parent finds out, so your, your friend finds out, like maybe you're that person. I feel like I was that person. Like as soon as I messed up, it's like, how does everyone know already? And, and here's, here's the idea. Or there's those people that are like, why do they get away with everything? Like how come they are constantly blowing it? They're constantly messing up. And like, they're the person in school where like the principal would take you aside, but not them. And you're like, but he did. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that. View, view it this way. God's saying, you want to know I love you? I'm going to discipline you. Um, God says, I'm not going to discipline someone that's not mine. I'm going to discipline those who are mine. You see, if you're getting away with something over and over again, if there's a sin in your life, you're like, no one knows. There's no accountability. I'm not confessing. I'm not bringing people into it. Actually, no one knows this part of me. And there's maybe something in your heart you're pursuing other than Jesus, and it's starting to like eat you alive, but you're getting away with it. That's when I would begin to fear. That's when I'd begin to wonder, wait, why is God allowing me to get away with this sin over and over again? You know, Jerome, an early church father who translated a lot of the Bible, uh, he, he said this, kind of like the great paradox. He says, the greatest anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us. Hear that. The greatest anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us. This is kind of like one of those paradoxical statements saying, um, 
there's something really good when God wants to discipline us. And when you don't, when you don't see that, that might be the greatest discipline. That might be the thing that causes like, wait, God, why am I getting away with this over and over again? See, the author's trying to be really clear. God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to get away with it. He loves you so much, he has to do something about it. He loves you so much, he's going to sooner or later correct you. And you might think in your own heart, but I don't want that. I don't like that. I want to do life. I want the parent who's not involved. And in reality, that's not what you want. Like in your heart of hearts, what you want is someone who loves you so much, they will say or do the hard thing. And that is what God the Father is for us. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Listen, discipline proves you are love, loved. Not only that, discipline, listen, discipline proves your sonship. Discipline proves your sonship. Read with me in verse seven. He goes on to say, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without, if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. He's saying discipline proves your loves. Really discipline proves you're part of the family. Discipline, discipline proves that you are a son. Now, the Bible uses this word son or sonship. The idea you'll see it in Galatians, you'll see it throughout the whole New Testament. It's the idea that you are an heir. You know, in their understanding, in their time period, that son was the heir, the, the inheritor of the father's wealth, of whatever the father had. And he's saying, you are sons. Do you not get it? You're sons. Now, I know that can maybe be a hard, like, understanding for like, wait, I'm a, I'm a woman. How am I a son? You know, listen, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. If I can be called a bride, you can be called a son. And the idea is you are, are an heir. I am an heir. We're sons and God's going to discipline his own. God's going to discipline his son. So here's the idea. Um, you're not going to discipline the neighbor's kid. You're not. Uh, maybe you want to. Maybe you want to discipline that neighbor's kid, but you're not. I think one time my neighbor tried to do that, but you're, you're, you're not going to do that. You discipline your family. God says, uh, I'm going to discipline you because you're mine. Again, here's why I'm trying to bring this all up. The way we view discipline, the way we view maybe consequences, the way we view why am I going through this right now, it can't be from this woe is me, God doesn't care. In fact, let it affirm God's love for you. See, I think Satan will oftentimes try to use suffering or trials or difficulties to be like, see, God doesn't love you. If God loved you, he would never allow that to happen. And in reality, the scriptures are saying just the opposite. God loves you so much, there's a lesson in this. There's something he's trying to teach us. Don't view it as a lack of love. View it as, wow, it's because I'm a son. He says, if you, don't, if you don't receive instruction, you're illegitimate. So again, that's when you should start to worry. Like, I'm getting away with this over and over again. But when you, you know your love because there's that, that pursuit of God, that God pursuing you, that God's chasing you down, that God says, I love you too much again to let you get away with this. So let me kind of explain it this way. Um, God is spirit, right? In, in Genesis 1, it says God made us male and fam- female in his image, that both a father and a mother represent the, the heart of God. There's something really beautiful about that, that both male and female represent God or speak of God's love for us. And it's not one without the other. Male and female are both made in his image. And so there's a side of it where we need that fatherly love, and there's a side of it where we need that motherly love. You know, I want you to think about this when it comes to the love of God. This, this might be an over simplification uh, of a parental love, but it's been said that a motherly love pulls her kids in and a fatherly love pushes their kids out. And I think that's true in my life. Like a mother's love is just nurturing. It's like, come on in. I'm the one like throwing my son off the roof into the pool. Like I'm the one like, this is gonna be good for you. And I try to like, you know, and then I get hurt obviously. But there's something different about this. There's something about a mother's love, which God represents 
that male and female both are made in his image and God has that nurturing, come in, I love you. But God has that fatherly love, which is the author is describing here specifically saying, and sometimes he might tend to push us out. That this is, this is gonna be hard. This might not be easy. You might not like, like this or want this, but this is gonna be good for you. And, and that is the father heart of God of I'm putting you, I'm allowing this or I'm disciplining you in this way because you're my son, because you're my daughter and I love you. And listen, church, the way you and I view suffering, trials, difficulties, when we understand it's from the loving heart of God, it changes how we walk through that. It's not, I can't believe God doesn't love me. It's, I can't believe God loves me so much that he, he wouldn't let me get away with it. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you intervened. Thank you, God, that you're trying to teach me a lesson right now. Help me learn that lesson. Are you following with me? Like, this is how we need to approach. He talks about this discipline that can come from the Lord. So what does discipline proves? It proves you're loved. It proves you're part of the family. And now, what does it produce? So what discipline produces? The author's gonna say, here's what God's wanting to produce in you when you allow it. So let's look at that. Uh, verse nine, what discipline produces? Read with me verse nine. It says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness." what a discipline produces. Now, the author's saying, look, you, you have earthly fathers and they did their best, you know, and we showed them respect. How much more should we show respect to God who's not doing his best, who's doing it perfectly? I, I love the phrase in verse 10, he says, our parents or father chastened us as seemed best to them, as seemed best to them. You know, you think about dads, we parented well at times, we parented not so well. We've disciplined out of love. Maybe we've disciplined out of a lack of love. Maybe we've had mixed motivations in discipline. We've blown it. You know, I remember my dad who said the classic phrase, does your dad ever say this to you before they spank you? Like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you're like, uh, I really beg to differ, dad. I remember being like a little kid thinking that's a lie. I would actually, I remember I'd go <laughs> to like a spanking, like go to your room, you're getting a spanking. And I remember I'd like run in my room, like put a pillow in my pants. Like my dad wouldn't notice. Like, it was a giant pillow. I'm like, uh, nothing's there. Anyways, uh, but it's funny now being a, a, a parent, there is that side where you're like, I, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. And it's so weird because now I catch myself saying that, like, hurts me more than it hurts you, son. <laughs> like, my son's probably like, sure, dad. But it's true. There's a side of this where you go, wow, like, I, this is not something I want to do, but it's necessary. This is good. If I don't do this, again, I'm, I'm going to raise a little tyrant here. If I don't discipline, if I don't correct, that is not good. Now, please follow with me and stay with me on this. Um, I get that this illustration might be hurtful or harmful to some. There are those who don't maybe have a father or they did have a father and he did not represent the father heart of, father heart of God to you. Maybe you had a dad who you go, I honestly never talked to my, I never want to see my dad. You have no idea how bad <laughs> it was growing up. And I think a lot of us can maybe sadly project our either lack of a father or an abuse of our father and project that on God and going, there's no way God is good. There's no, I don't, I, this idea of God being a father, I don't like. And it's, gonna be, it's very hard to try to submit that and say, I need to surrender my view of my father and be introduced to this good heavenly father. That my father might have punished me not correctly, but my father, God, will never do that. And I get that it's hard. There's sometimes a disconnect. It's not like it's easy to, to just say, wow, I can fully understand this concept of God being a father. That is easy for me. I get that it might be difficult. 
I, I get that we have to approach scriptures as Jesus said, hey, when you pray, say our Father in heaven. There's something about understanding God as a father and as, in, as a father the way God intended to be. So I'm bringing this up for many reasons because whether you've had a good father or a lack of a father, we're trying to reintroduce the way God says, here's how a father could be, should be. That discipline comes from love. That discipline doesn't come from a place of vengeance. You disrespect me in public, I'll pay you back. That's not the father heart of God. You know, Psalm 27 said it this way. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. You know, David wrote that in Psalm 27. I think about when Saul, do you remember the story when Saul was looking uh, for the next king? And, and then, you know, David's father's like, look at this son, look at this son. And he's like, do you have any other sons? He's like, oh yeah, I have one other son, but he's in the field with sheep. There's no way that's gonna be the king. And I can't imagine that feeling of David, you know, because obviously he would know that story. Uh, it's in the Bible. Uh, but you think about that, and you think about that moment of like, wow, my dad didn't even think of me. You know, David writes, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Listen, whatever that looks like for you, know this, that God is the father you've always needed. God is the father. He's the only father that can represent true humility, true love, true grace, perfection. He, again, the author saying, our fathers did it as best to them, but our God will do this in that perfect way, in that perfect manner. And here's the point of this. What is God trying to produce? Here's the key, verse 10. Verse 10 says it this way, that we may be partakers of his holiness. See, what is God trying to do through discipline? God's saying, I'm disciplining you, listen, because I want you to be holy. I want you to be like me. First Peter 1 uh, takes a verse from the Old Testament and it says it this way. First Peter 1 verse 15, Peter wrote, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter says, as God, God who called you is holy and he's called, he's holy. He's called you to be holy. It says this over and over again. If you read Genesis through Deuteronomy, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. God describes him way that the most amount of times the way that God is described is as holy. God is holy. God is completely set apart. And he says, be holy as I am holy. The idea is uh, you want to be like your God. You want to be like your dad. You know, it's one of my favorite stages is when Micah was just copying me. Like the way I would say something, he'd try to say it. I would like dance in a really goofy way and you trust me, you don't want to see that. And then Micah would try to do the same dance. Like I loved the, the season and the phase where he's trying to just mimic and copy. And God is basically saying that. He's saying, hey, listen, as I'm holy, be holy. The attributes you see in me will also be in my children. The attributes you see in Josiah will also be in my children. The idea is that it should carry on. Be holy as I am holy. God has called us to be holy. That means, again, to be set apart, to be completely different. Listen to how Proverbs says this, because the, the aim, remember, verse 10, the aim is holiness. Discipline's goal, its purpose, what it produces, is to, hold, to be holy like God is holy. Here's what Proverbs 22, 15 says about this. It says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. I, maybe you've heard that verse and maybe you've heard it like in a negative way where it's like this overly crazy way, but just please hear this for a second. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. If you're a parent, you definitely agree with this. There's foolishness in the heart of a child and it says the rod of correction will drive it out. Here's the idea. Think about this with God and us. There's foolishness in my heart. There's sin in my heart. There's wicked desires, thoughts, feelings, attitudes. 
that are just disgusting and they're foolish. And he says, the rod of correction will drive that out. That the whole idea of discipline is to purify that, is to correct that. Guys, there's really kind of two thoughts. Even today, in like a secular postmodern world, there's kind of two big thoughts. Either the problem is out there, the problems with this institute, with this form of government, the problems with capitalism, the problems with socialism, the problems with, and we always try to identify it just out there in some way, which is true. There, there is obviously problems in that. Or primarily, as the scriptures would say, the problem is in here. The problem's in here. The, there's problems out there because there's problems in here. That God is trying to drive out foolishness within our hearts. That there's sin in me. Guys, I'm the problem. You're the problem. You're like, what? Thank you. Welcome to church. But there's the truth to this, saying, um, you know what? God wants to deal with the sin in my life. Before I try to fix the world, before I try to fix the problem, God's like, let me fix your hearts. Let me drive out the sin in your hearts. I think this would be so, guys, as I approach other people, as I approach issues, sins, injustices, things that we need to as Christians get engaged with, we got to do this, the sense of humility as Jesus talked about, getting the plank out of my eye before I get the splinter out of someone else's eye, that there's a problem and wickedness in my heart that God wants to address and deal with before I could ever help and assist the world in the problem in their lives, that ultimately Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's you, that's me, that's a problem of the heart, that it's been said that the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. The heart of every problem, the heart of every problem out there. Think of a sin, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. That my heart is wicked. That my heart is deceitfully wicked, as Jeremiah would say, above all else. That my heart needs to be regenerated, born again, made new, new desires, new life. You know what's, know what's so crazy? Um, before you met Jesus, like sin was just really fun and exciting. And, and you're like, you're, there's like a sense where you're like, I want to sin. When you encounter Jesus, it's crazy how Jesus just kind of screws everything up in a good way. It's crazy how Jesus just messes with our life and goes, you know what, the things you want, you're not going to want anymore. The things that look so good to you are going to taste bitter to you. The things that look so desirable to you will bring you pain. And it's crazy how Jesus does something, you're like, wow, the things I cared about, I don't really care about. The things I once lived for that didn't bring me meaning, didn't bring me value, I no longer want to live for those things. I want to live for something greater, that Jesus begins to like reconstruct our heart. Listen, the parent's role, and this is what Proverbs says, and this is what the author's saying, is that our heart is foolish, and God's trying to produce holiness, and to do that, there's correction, that God's going to correct us to produce holiness. God's going to discipline us because he wants us to be like him, that God loves us too much to let us carry on doing our own thing, our own way, and it leads to destruction. The way of a man seems right to him, but the end is destruction. And God is saying, I want to get involved. I love you too much. I will correct. I will intervene. And the author goes on to say in verse 11, he continues this thought of what it produces. Look at verse 11. He says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, trained by it. If you were to circle the word trained, it's this Greek word. I'm going to probably say it wrong, but it's like gymnazo. What do you think that means? It, it, it takes the word gymnasium. He's saying, you know, no one enjoys discipline. At first it's painful, but it brings peaceable fruit. It's like a gymnasium. It's like you're being trained. When you go to the gym, 
No one, and maybe you do enjoy this now, and we gotta talk, but the idea when you go to the gym, you don't really enjoy it. You, you might go, I need to do this, and you're exercising, and what you're doing is you feel like you're getting weaker. Have you ever worked out, and like the more you're working out, like the more you're exercising the muscle, you're like, I don't feel stronger, I feel weaker. What's happening is obviously it's tearing apart your muscles, it's making you in a sense weaker so that it can build up stronger. And the author is saying, listen, God trains us this way, that there needs to be resistance for there to be growth. That just like when you work out, there's resistance, so there can later be growth. And please hear this, church. Why you say is there suffering, difficulties, trials? There's resistance, things that feel heavy, the pressure. So you work out, and then when that's gone, you go, wow, I feel stronger now. After I've gotten out of that, I, I, there's now strength to that. But when you've been trained by it, the point is you've got to train. You ever see the people that go to the gym and they just walk around? That's not me. Um, but you ever see the people that just walk around all day and you're like, I don't think you're doing anything. That's going to do nothing. Like, that's going to do nothing. You're like, you can't just be there. You have to actually be trained by it. Again, you can come to church and just walk around. You can go to a community group and just walk around like you're there. But are you being trained by it? Are you, are you pushing as well? Are you pushing? Are you pulling? Is there resistance? Are you growing? Are you confessing sin? Is there accountability? Are you practicing the spiritual disciplines? Are you allowing God to do this to build up your strength? You can be there. You can be that guy in the gym who just walks around all day and nothing happens. You can be that person that walks around church all day and nothing happens. You have to also engage in it, be trained by it. Say, okay, I'll push, I'll push back, I'll, I'll, I'll pull, I'll let God build my spiritual muscles. This is what the author is saying. It's never, it's never easy, obviously. Like it'd be a lot easier for me to not eat healthy, to not ever go to the gym. It'd be a lot easier. But he's saying, if you want to grow, if you want to be trained, you got to exercise, you got to participate. And so church, please hear this. Just because you're going through a trial, just because you're suffering, does not necessarily mean you'll be stronger. Are you embracing it? Are you taking it in? Just because you're suffering does not mean when it's over, it's like, well, I suffered, so therefore I'm a better person, better Christian, better follower of Jesus. It does not necessarily mean that. The Lord might be trying to do something in you. And don't, do not resist. Like, let it train you. Let it build you up. I love, again, the first thought of verse 11, how he says it. He says, no chastening seems to be joyful, but painful right? I, I remember having like ankle surgery, like I think last year, and there's that side where it is so painful for weeks, but afterwards you go, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. After I've done weight, you know, strengthening or training, now it feels stronger than when it first did. I don't have that cracking pain anymore. If you've ever had some sort of medicine or some sort of rehabilitation, you know there is pain. It's not enjoyable, but if you do it well, if you train well, you'll go, wow, it, it brought forth peaceable fruit. And this is what the author says in verse 11. Again, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God's trying to produce peaceable fruit of righteousness. God is trying to produce within discipline, holiness and righteousness. Now, please stay with me on this because I know that this is where it can get kind of confusing. The question kind of comes up, which is, what is discipline? Like, is everything in my life that's difficult or bad, is that discipline? Like, is God disciplining me for sin in my life? Like, am I going through fill in the blank? Am I going through cancer because I was being sinful and there's discipline? I've seen people take this context or this verse and really use it poorly or apply it poorly, or maybe they've heard a bad message on this and they go, everything bad in my life is just discipline. Here's the point. The author's saying endure as discipline, meaning it might not necessarily be directly disciplined, but it, of, like, approach it with the mindset of whatever it is I'm going through, how can this discipline me? Not necessarily punish me, but how can it discipline me? So that's, this is where I really want it to kind of stick. I don't want you to get lost in this. Not everything bad in your life is because God is trying to discipline you because of some moral sin. 
as much as how can I view it though? How can I endure it as discipline? Not that it is, but endure it as discipline. So let me kind of give you a few definitions that I think are important to define. First is this, punishment and judgment. Punishment and judgment. Um, the, this, the idea is this, the code of justice has been broken, you must pay. When you stand before a judge and there's punishment or there's judgment, uh, you broke justice, you must pay, right? Uh, the next idea is, is discipline. This, this is a loving attempt to mold character. It might and probably will involve pain, but the goal is not retribution, it is formation. Please hear that. Um, it's a loving attempt to mold character. It's not God paying you back. It's not the idea, it's, it's to form you. Uh, next is the idea of consequence. It's just a natural result of bad decisions. So let's just think about this. When it comes to punishment or judgment, what does the scriptures teach us? Well, it teaches us the, that my sin deserves death. My sin deserves eternal separation from God. But guess what? On the cross, Jesus took my judgment. Jesus took on the sin of the world. He was judged for my sin. That by faith, Jesus paid for my sin. I look at Jesus in faith saying, Jesus, you paid it all. Your blood atones or covers or removes my sins. And now I'm right with you, God. And now Jesus's righteousness was given to me. My sin was given to him. And this great exchange took place. And so God judged my sin once on Jesus. He punished my sin. He's not gonna punish it on me. The more of the idea that we see is this idea of discipline, that God loves you. He's gonna discipline you. He's gonna uh, mold your character. Yes, it might involve pain in some capacity, but it's not retribution, it's formation. It's not the sense of judgment, it's God trying to form you. The next idea is just a consequence. That, you know, when you uh, do something, there will be a consequence, a, natu- a natural consequence of that. Uh, let me put it this way. Paul said in Galatians 6, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Church, please hear this. Um, there's this idea of like this karmaic debt, karma, right? You do something bad, something bad is going to happen to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches not karma, but sowing and reaping. You sow a seed. Uh, let's say I sow an apple seed, I'll reap an apple tree. The Bible is taking the same concept saying you sow sinful things, you will have sinful outcomes, sowing and reaping. You sow to the spirit, you sow spiritual things, you'll have spiritual outcomes. This is good news. What are you investing in? What are you sowing? Right now is your time, energy, money being sowed for sinful, selfish, pleasurable things. It's only for you. That's all that matters. Are you sowing spiritual things? Are you investing in people, the kingdom of God, and love, and your name? Like, what are you investing in? Because whatever man sows, that he'll also reap. You sow the flesh, you reap corruption or death, Paul says. You sow the spirit, you reap life. This is not karma. This is sowing and reaping. This is just natural consequences or the outcome of sowing and reaping. Another way of putting consequences is Jeremiah 2, 19. Uh, In Jeremiah 2, uh, God says, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Your own wickedness is gonna correct you. Your own backslidings are gonna rebuke you. You're gonna learn from the mistakes you've made. Like there's just natural consequences to the decisions you and I make. Now, here's a question. But what if something unjust happens to me? Someone really hurt me. This was not fair. This was not right. This was not just. And you go, is that God disciplining me? No, not necessarily. You're supposed to view it and endure it as discipline, meaning what can God teach me from this? But it's not necessarily God disciplining you. There are things that are terrible and unjust that are wrong. 
that we as a church should fight for and stand up against. But, but know this, um, there is this redemptive purpose when unjust things happen. The story of Joseph is abs- absolutely beautiful. Joseph, one of many brothers, sold by his brothers into slavery. He, he had a vision from God that he'd be leading his brothers and now he's sold as a slave. He works his way up in a, in a house, in Potiphar's house as a slave. He's eventually accused of rape, thrown in prison. I mean, the guy just goes through suffering after suffering. He has an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. He does that. Pharaoh appoints him as one of the leaders. He now meets his brothers. His vision of his brothers standing before him comes true. And and here's the idea. Um, Joseph had such a beautiful mindset about his circumstances. Joseph did not get bitter in the process. Joseph did not give up in the process. He goes, how dare God? How dare God do this? He has no right to do this to me. That's not what Joseph did. Joseph said this in Genesis 50, 20. Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Hey brothers, you meant harm for me. You meant evil for me. This was evil and unjust, but God meant it for good. But God had this redemptive purpose in that moment. I I want us to hear that it's not so much as God disciplining you as God is saying, but this can be a redemptive moment. But what man meant for evil, I can redeem for good. I can use for good. Because I want you to think about Paul and what Paul walked through. Paul had some sort of disability, some sort of issue in his life. And if you remember, Paul prayed, God, remove this. And I, and I just want to read this, this section to you in 2 Corinthians 12, because it's so profound what Paul says. It's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, God's given me so many revelations, unless I be filled with pride, it says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to beat me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a beautiful mindset. What a mindset that, it almost sounds crazy. Paul's like, there's been a thorn in my flesh. We don't know what that means. Some people might think he had an eye problem, an eye issue. Maybe he was losing his sight. There's ideas for that, whatever. But he was going through something. And here's what he says, the origin of it. He says, is a messenger of Satan sent to beat me. So the origin, he goes, this was satanic, man. And I prayed and said, God, remove this. And God didn't. And God said, you know what? My grace is enough for you. My strength will be made perfect in weakness. And he goes, you know what? That's enough. I'll boast more in my sufferings that Christ may be glorified. And, and here's why I'm trying to bring this up. When people go, why am I suffering? Why is this discipline happening in my life? Is it God? Is it Satan? Paul says the origin is Satan, but he also noticed this. He says it was to remove pride from him. By the way, Satan uh, wants us to be prideful. I don't know if you know that. Satan's like, he's like go team pride. Um, the, the idea though he's saying is God allowed Satan to do this to remove pride from my life. So the origin was Satan, but God had a redemptive purpose in it. The origin was the enemy. It was not the Lord but God had a redemptive thing for it to remove pride. So here's why I'm bringing this up. When you look at suffering, trials, difficulties, you go, is it discipline for some sin in my life? Not necessarily. The origin might not be from the Lord, but God will have a redemptive purpose in mind. And that is for yours to discover and find and seek out and seek out the will of God in this. Psalm 119 said it this way, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Do you hear that? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before there was discipline, I just did whatever I want. But then when I was afflicted, when I was disciplined, I kept your word. There's just something about discipline that teaches us that we don't like, but it's a reminder of God's love. Amen? Listen, when, when applied correct, correctly, 
It can produce holiness and purity. We'll keep reading verse 12. The author says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. The idea here when he talks about, you know, weak hands, feeble knees, he's saying you're fearful, you're tired, you're exhausted. Strengthen each other up, man. Remember in chapter 12, he talked about life being like a race. And when you think about a runner whose like hands are on their knees, they're exhausted, they're tired. He's saying strengthen each other, encourage each other, build each other up. Remove things from your path that you don't dislocate your foot. Like clear out your path, clear out junk from your life so that you don't bring self-harm on top of what it is you're going through. But verse 14 is the key. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what is the end goal of discipline? He says that you, God might pursue peace, that you would pursue peace and holiness. So here's the idea. Peace and holiness. And these are two things the world lacks. These are two things our world needs right now, peace and holiness. What does our world need right now? We need peace. You know, it's been said you'll never know the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. That people, when, when Paul writes in every book in the New Testament, grace and peace, grace and peace. If you want peace, you need grace. He says here, we'll read in a second, but they were like strained from grace. You want the peace of God, you got to know the grace of God. And he says, pursue peace and holiness, church, this is something we're to pursue. By the way, notice it doesn't say achieve peace and holiness. It's not, you're, you're not necessarily going to achieve it. We're to pursue it though. This is a good reminder because there might be neighbors or friends or family and you're like, we don't see eye to eye on this, but listen, pursue peace. Whether or not you ever achieve it, pursue peace, pursue holiness, pursue, pursue that work in your life. God's trying to produce peace and holiness. Jesus was known as the king of righteousness or holiness and the king of peace. We said that earlier in Hebrews, the king of holiness, the king of righteousness, and the king of peace. He's saying pursue that. Discipline is to produce that when it's accepted. It will produce peace. It will produce holiness when you're trained by it, when you allow that. Now, the author is going to give an example of what discipline produces when it's rejected. When you don't accept God's discipline, we're going to see it produces bitterness and a heart that wants nothing to do with God. And he gives the example of Esau. So let's read verse 15. He says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What discipline produces when it's rejected. He says there is this root of bitterness. Be careful. Be careful. Church, listen. When you despise the discipline of God, it can produce this bitterness in our lives. If you've ever seen, and, and, uh, the, the term even the root of bitterness if you've ever seen a weed and you try to pull a weed out and you just pull the top off and you're like, okay, it's just going to regrow back. Why? Because the root goes deep. I might've got the, the top of it, but there's still a root and it's just going to grow back, maybe even bigger. And, and the idea is, man, bitterness goes really deep. If you've been around bitter people, you know how deep it goes. If you are bitter, you know how deep it goes. There's many reasons people could become bitter. Someone intentionally hurt them, unintentionally hurt them. Maybe they imaginably create a scenario and it just produced bitterness. There are many people I've talked to where you see the bitterness and you go, is that part imagination, part, what, what is that? And you're trying to, but here's the idea. It goes deep. So you, you can't, it's not a surface level thing. You can't just mow it over. You can't just put on a happy face and be like, I'm not bitter. The, the root of bitterness goes so deep. 
Maybe you've heard that saying that bitterness is like taking a, a, a you know, poison or taking a cyanide pill and expecting the other person to die. You're so bitter. It's like you're taking something that's gonna hurt you, kill you, but you take it and you're like, I hope they die. But you're taking a pill and it's like, that's gonna kill you, not them. It's not gonna pr- produce anything. There's nothing good from this. There's nothing good. Maybe God has disciplined you in some way and you're just bitter at God. I know so many who grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, Christian environment, whatever, fill in the blank. I can tell you all the stories and now they're bitter at God. I'll read later. Even this week I was reading posts from people who go, I hate the church, I hate this. And they, you just see the bitterness that goes so deep. And maybe there's discipline. They, they did this to me. They treated me unfairly, unjustly. And you see that they took the discipline and it was rejected and it produced bitterness and it goes deep. And maybe, maybe the church didn't handle it perfectly. Maybe there's something wrong that did happen. But regardless, that bitterness in their life goes so deep. They didn't say, God, this is not, God, I don't understand why I'm in this, but help me learn. The attitude wasn't, God, train me. Their attitude was, this isn't fair. It was that child that goes, this discipline isn't fair. And it produced bitterness. And the author's saying, let me give you probably the greatest example of someone who's bitter. And he talks about Esau. Now, outside of, of Judas, Esau is probably, it's one of the saddest stories you'll see in the Bible. I mean, it's one of those heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stories, but he, in a sense, brought it upon himself. And, and if you're familiar with it, the story of, of Esau is interesting. So you have Abraham who gave birth to Isaac, or he didn't, his wife. But, you know, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, the twins, right? And they're born. Esau came out first. Jacob was grabbing his brother by the heel. Like he was right behind him. Jacob means heel catcher. Like Jacob was always on his tail. And if you read the story of Jacob and Esau, it's really found in Genesis 25 through 27. But it's a fascinating story where Jacob, who was his twin brother, really wanted to be like the head of the family, who like really wanted that birthright, who really wanted the inherit. Like he wanted the responsibility that came with that. You know, uh, you could say Jacob was more of a mama's boy, close to his mom. Esau was close to his dad, Isaac. But God promised Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, he says, listen, the older shall serve the younger. There's a prophecy from God saying, the older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. Isaac knew this, but Isaac had a special maybe place in his heart for Esau. So the story goes that Esau one day is, you know, a hunter. Esau's looking for game. He's looking for food. He can't find it. He comes back home and his brother's in the kitchen cooking, making some stew. And he's like, I, I will do anything for that stew. And Jacob, who always had this in his heart and mind, goes, give me your birthright. Like, let me be the leader. Let me be the receiver of the inheritance. Let, let me lead the family next. Let me be this. And he goes, fine. He goes, what good to me is a birthright if I'm just gonna die? I think he's probably overly dramatic. He's probably like, I'm just gonna die. I'm so hungry. And you know, he sold his whole birthright for a morsel of food. And here's what the author is saying. Please catch this. He's going, do you see how shallow this is? Do you, do you see how he missed it? Esau wanted instant gratification. And he missed out. He missed out on all that God had for him because his, he served his flesh rather than his spirit. His flesh said, I'm hungry, give in, do this, and he gave in. He, the idea is you must consider what you're giving up when you give in to the moment. Hey, husbands, listen to this. Followers of Jesus, listen. You must consider what you potentially will give up when you give in to the moment, that you're in a moment of compromise. You're in a moment where you know you shouldn't even be found in that, in that moment. And you think, well, what's the big deal? Maybe you feel like I'm not being seen at home, not being heard at home. I'll just give in with this person and you give up this moment. You get a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of pain. That's Esau. Esau had a moment of pleasure, but a lifetime of pain. Esau was set on just what's here and now and he didn't have an eternal or bigger perspective. And Jacob wanted, he saw the big perspective. Jacob had his issues. Jacob had his faults, his sins. But Jacob also had this bigger mindset. It's not about the here and now. It's not about moment gratification. 
It's about something much bigger. Listen, God is so much more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. God is so much more concerned with your holiness than your health. God is so much more concerned with your holiness than how much money you have. Like, I know that sometimes we think God is this genie who's there to answer all of our prayers, but in reality, God's like, I want you. I want you. It doesn't matter if you have all the money, all the wealth, all the influence, all the power in the world, but you don't have me. It does not matter. What will profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And that's Esau. He just gave up something very priceless, you could say, his soul for a moment. And, and sometimes we, we look at that and go, man, it's so foolish for someone to give up their soul for something so petty and so foolish, but we see this all the time in the church. I can't tell you how many times I've had to sit across and hear or have a hard conversation with someone who gave up so much just for a moment of pleasure. They lost their life, their ministry, their friends, their family, because they just gave into that one moment. And this is the story of Esau. And he's saying, don't do this. Don't be like Esau. Don't reject discipline. Don't fight it. There's a side of this church where you have to hear this. Do not miss out on what God's doing for your life for just a moment of pleasure or joy. If you're flirting with sin, if you're, if you're just playing around with it, do not give up all that God has for you for just a moment where you can feel worth, like they have worth and value. For a moment where you feel like your needs were finally met. It is not worth it. It is not worth it. Esau reminds us that we need to have a bigger eternal mindset. It says in the book of Genesis, he despised his birthright. Like he didn't value what God gave him. Some of you despise the body God has given you. Value what God has given you. Don't sell yourself so short. Don't give in so easily. Don't despise all the good things God has done for you. Say, God, this is amazing. This is a beautiful, this is beautiful. This is a gift from you. I'm not gonna despise it. I'm gonna use it for your glory. I'm not gonna trade it or sell it for one moment, for one night, for one experience. You're way more important. He despised that thing. He gave in. And there's an interesting phrase where it's, he sought it out by tears and he couldn't find repentance. People go, what the heck is that? What does that mean? I think here's the clear idea. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, listen, it's about just repentance, essentially. He says, now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but, for, but uh, the sorrow of the world produces death. He's saying, your sorrow, the church of Corinth, he wrote a letter to them. And guess what? They repented. The first letter, 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, they repented. He goes, good, good. Your sorrow led to repentance beautiful. For godly sorrow that leads to repentance produces life, but worldly sorrow produces death. So guess what? The world can have sorrow. Oh, look what I missed out on. I could have had this amazing future. I could have had all these things. I gave in. And here's the point. It's not true repentance. It's not that they wanted God. They wanted what God could offer them. You see, Esau, it's not so much that he wanted the heart of God. He's like, I'm missing out on what I could have had. You see, repentance isn't just going, oh man, God, I blew it. I made, I made this mistake and now it's affecting me and hurting me, so I repent. No, repentance is truly saying, God, I, I've, I've misunderstood. I've, Mishonored you. I've missed the point. I, I want you, God. It's not about these things. These things are just a bite. I want to know you, walk with you. Genuine repentance is not just saying, I, I feel so bad for what I've done. Um, God, will you forgive me? It's saying, God, I love you so much. I cannot believe I broke your law, your, your commands, your standard, that I violated relationship with you. God, I just want you. I want to be, be right with you. That's what matters. It wasn't a genuine repentance. According to most people, John MacArthur said this about his repentance. He says, listen, just because he sought it with tears does not indicate sincerity or true remorse. He found no place for repentance. He bitterly regretted, 
but he did not repent. He selfishly wanted God's blessing, but he did not want God. Someone might show tears, they might cry. You might have, maybe you've seen that from family or from friends. I feel so bad, there's tears, there's cry, but there's not genuine change. I'm sad about what I missed out on, but you don't necessarily want God. And here's the thing. It's crazy when you think about the story of Esau. I was thinking about this for, you know, a parent telling your kids, what do kids want? Kids want the here and the now. They want the ice cream right now. They want the moment, momentary pleasure right now. And I'm like, man, Esau's such a good example. Like the author's a genius to say, hey, parents, you know, let, let's talk about this. Hey, you need to like learn from this perspective. I think about this for me and my parenting. Like, hey, Micah, look at the story of Esau. He gave up something beautiful, worthy, that had weight and substance for a moment of food. Micah, do not give up your life. Do not, do not sell yourself short for just a moment of pleasure. Like what a beautiful illustration. And here's the idea. This guy, you could say, lost his soul over a meal. But what I love about the gospel and what I love about Jesus is that he introduces a new meal to us. That when he's sitting down with his disciples and it's, it's Passover, it's what we call communion. It's the day of the new covenant where Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take a drink, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And over a meal, he says, this is the new covenant I give to you. And I, I'm just thankful for the storyline of the Bible that says, it's so sad what was lost at a meal, but look what Jesus introduced to us at a meal, the new covenant, that you and I can have newness of life, that you and I can learn from discipline. We don't have to be like Esau. He's saying, learn from this guy who got bitter at discipline. Learn from this guy who maybe had tears, but it wasn't genuine repentance. It was just worldly sorrow. And so we can learn from this saying, God, I just want you. I just want you. Who, who cares if I have everything else, but I don't have you? I just want you. And this is what God, I think, is trying to produce in us. Listen, when God disciplines you, church, he loves you. It just proves you're his son, you're his daughter, you're his family. And God's trying to produce holiness. God's trying to produce peace. God's trying to produce these things. Don't fight it as much as we want to get out of it. Learn from Paul, I'll boast the more because God is, Christ has made strength, Christ has made strong in my weakness. I'll boast all the more because God's trying to do something in me. He's trying to remove pride. He's trying to make my character more like him. I'll, I'll boast more because God is doing something greater right here, right now. So I'm not gonna fight it. I'm gonna view it as love. Um, listen, I wanted to pray in a second and, and we are, we're gonna close out, but I just wanna give you that time to say, God, I don't wanna fight your discipline anymore. I don't wanna view it as a lack of love. I wanna view it as love. God, I, wanted, I want you to do what it is you want to do. Produce holiness in me. Set me apart for your work. I want to be holy like you're holy. I want to be all in. And, and don't, I don't want to fight this anymore. So here's the thing. I don't want to just do a Bible study on this and then be like, all right, bye guys. Like right now at home, wherever you're at, I just say, give God a moment and say, God, um, I surrender. That thing, the thing I'm, I'm, you're trying to train me up in, the thing you're trying to discipline me in, I don't want to fight this anymore. God, I've been, I've been resisting community. I've been resisting accountability. I haven't been confessing. I've been hiding this. And Lord, no longer. Lord, I'm gonna, re I'm gonna receive this because you want, I want peace. I want holiness. So I just wanna give you guys a second. Kind of that Psalm 139 prayer of Lord, search me, know me. And just say, Lord, search me, know me. Produce holiness in me, produce peace in me. Why don't you just take a second and ask God to produce what he is. He wants to produce in you. And then I'll close out in prayer. And we'll share a couple quick uh, announcements. So take a second, ask the Lord to do that.